Hey. Hello. Raise a glass with me. Raise a glass to freedom. <laughs> to our 13th episode. Unlucky number 13. I'm excited. I feel like we should have probably done something a little more spookier than Electric Light Orchestra for our 13th episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that silence you're hearing is me regretting my decision <laughs> to do ELO, but here we are. Yeah, I'll be fine. Well, we made it to 13. Apparently that's like the the episode that most podcasts never make it past. So It's usually an unlucky number. If you for never, for a podcast, it's a lucky number. If you never hear from us again, it's probably why. this podcast is cursed at 13. We're, yeah. we're not planning on stopping. We already cursed so. ourselves by covering Led Zeppelin. If we survive that, we can survive anything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, I'm Leah. And I'm Bethann. And this is Shio Rakio. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. We got a review. We do. And this one... It's from Sarah Cause. Hey, Sarah. Do I know Sarah? No. Okay. Sarah and I were in a really horrible illustrator class in college together. Aw. We were in a group project where we had to illustrate a book, and it was literally the worst group project I've ever done. No book should be illustrated by six different people. <laughs> that that's a metaphor yeah that's a metaphor for someone that was a that class was the semester before i got married so i pretty much spent the whole class just doing my wedding planning smart the teacher gave zero shits about us it was great oh i love classes like that well hi sarah let's read re- your review shall we <laughs> it's called rock on five stars as someone who is too cheap to pay for a Spotify subscription, I mean, same. I thought I had to endure the punishment of sitting through the mostly all male banter from local hard rock radio hosts. Q, she will rock you. That's us. The perfect podcast for enthusiasts and casuals alike. I love how articulate these ladies are and how we all learn new facts together. Rock on. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Now we're more articulate because this is week two with these very fancy new mics. Hells yeah. You can hear us both. <laughs> we're never going to get over how cool this is. We probably. Got, we got little foam caps on them. So now we can say all the P words. Actually, that probably popped because I was literally clicking my lips. But yeah. Yeah. Have fun editing. It's nice. <laughs> Pied Piper. Okay, yeah. we'll stop. Works great. Bidding on the mics. Yeah, it's fine. Um, do we have anything else to talk about before this episode? Oh, I do. Yes. I actually do. I, I can't believe we didn't bring this up last recording. Oh, well. I went and saw a band, Leah. Oh, yeah. What? How did it? It's been so long. I don't it's been know. like two weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our memory is not <laughs> That's that true. That great. Yeah, I have a 48-hour retention rate. You saw Coheed in Cambria. It was a lifelong dream. It was. So for those who don't know, uh, Coheed and Cambria is a band from my childhood. Literally. Yeah. They're kind of a progressive rock band. But what's really cool about them is their albums are all based on, they're all concept albums. And they're based off a comic book series called The Armory Wars, written by the lead singer, Claudio Sanchez. So cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So I've been listening to them 
since I was, oh, I want to say like seven, seventh grade, because my brother started listening to them and they're from our area. So they're kind of like hometown heroes in my opinion. Yeah. So I love that band. They're, they're really awesome. So, but you know, I've listened to them pretty much from seventh grade on. Like I'll still go time. back to this day and listen to the older albums I grew up with. And <clears throat> what's really cool is they came to Charlottesville and it was the first time I got to see them, That's even so though cool. they play all the time in New York where I was from. I was I wasn't here. old enough. I couldn't oh, go with my brother. Yeah. <laughs> like I couldn't go with him. He wouldn't let me nor my mom. So John, you should have took her. Yeah, here I am. 27 years old, finally seeing the bands of my childhood dreams. Hey, it's never too late. That's right. It's never too late. So it was awesome. It was a great, it was such an incredible show. They pulled songs from like their second and third album, which are my favorite albums by them. So it was really awesome to hear those nostalgic songs and sing along with them. Sounds great. It was so good. There is no transition into from that to what we're talking about. So without further ado... (laughs) Electric Light Orchestra. Yay. Which I really just picked because one day we had a, was it a 70s playlist on at the office? I think it was a 70s I think playlist. that's right. And these songs kept coming up and we were like, who is this? This is good. And every time we said that, we looked over and it was Electric Light Orchestra. And I was like, okay, I guess I should cover these guys. It was a sign. It was a sign from the Sonos, Sonos gods in our office. So who are ELO? Jeff Lynn, who we're going to learn about in a second, describes them as you've got your rock and roll, you got your harmonies, and you got your classical bits. Stick them all together, and what do you got? You got ELO. <laughs> I love that description. It's almost like bibbidi bobbidi boo, you know, stick them together, and what do you got? <laughs> doesn't quite work e- in the song. Electric light orchestra. Mm, doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't. So we'll take a second to introduce our main character in this story. His name is Jeff Lynn. Not a great name. Sorry, bud. He was born in Shard and Birmingham, United Kingdom. Oh, good old British band. I didn't know he was British. Yeah, the whole band is British. Oh, I think they're all from the UK area. I'm not. This is one of those bands that has about a million members in and out throughout like 35 years. Got it. We're not going to talk about a lot of them. It would be a complete waste of time. But Jefflin, he's obviously super musical. He has this amazing band but he got his first guitar which is an acoustic guitar when he was young and his father bought it for him for two pounds oh and as of 2012 he was still playing it on stage is that not the cutest thing you've ever heard oh (laughs) that's so sweet uh before joining or before forming ELO he started a group with two other guys where they literally describes it as with Spanish guitars and cheap electrical instruments so you know they sounded great yeah I only put this in here because they that band was originally named the Rockin' Hellcats. Wait, the Rockin' Hellcats? Yes, Rockin' with an apostrophe instead of a G. <laughs> Hellcats. They didn't like that name, so they changed it to the Handicaps. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1963. We were not At least they're staying somewhat of a theme. But the obvious, that didn't work out for some reason, so they changed it to the Andicaps and dropped the uh, Stop it. <laughs> no. Um, um, they Were they just working down the list of how to make this rhyme, but still? <laughs> Needless to say, none of those bands survived. Yeah. So he bounces around from some other, some other groups for the next five years. 
but in 1968, Roy Wood, who is a guitarist, he's the vocalist and the songwriter for a band called The Move, also not a great name, decided that he was done with the traditional music scene of the time mm-hmm. and wanted to make a new band, a new kind of rock band that used violins, cellos, string basses, horns, and woodwinds to give their rock music a classical sound. Okay. Take a guess at who they were inspired by. Bach? <laughs> I mean, yes, but <laughs> they wanted to pick up where the Beatles left off. With, oh, with, okay. With the art rock era of experimentation. I could have given a way better answer than what I said, but the cellos <laughs> threw me off. Yeah. And I was like going through my head like, Buddy Holly didn't have a cello. Elvis Presley no. didn't have a cello. So they that were makes sense. they were inspired by uh, like the Beatles. They started recording with, started experimenting with multi-track recording, mm-hmm. and just you know getting high off, out of their minds, and just coming up with. They kind of started the genre of art rock. Okay, which lasted from the, early, the late sixties to the early seventies. They were inspired by the art rock movement that was big in the late nineteen sixties to early seventies. Electric Light Orchestra is probably the most famous to move out of this era, this uh, this genre. Others include Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Gentle Giant, and the Moody Blues. These particular like branch of rock artists were classified as employing complicated and conceptual approaches to their music. Because <laughs> that's how you want to be described. Sometimes certain songs of David Bowie's and the Velvet Underground are also categorized as art rock. Okay, I could see that. Basically, if it's weird and it experiments with a bunch of instruments, it's pretty much art rock. That's literally the music I grew up in. That's what you can describe my music I grew up with. So you're going to like ELO. Yeah. So Roy Wood, he gets this idea. He wants to make an art rock band, basically. That's what he wants. Pick up where the Beatles left off. He's friends with Jeff Lynne, who at the time was fronting a group called The Idol Race. The Idol Race? The Idol Race. Okay. I-D-L-E. Idol Race. Like they're not going, I don't know. Apparently, his grandmother hated the name, so when your grandma hates your band name... I mean, you're racing a bunch of idols. Rethink it. (laughs) Uh, And he heard... Roy Wood told him his idea, and he was like, hell yeah, I want to be in that band. So in July 1970, they got a bunch of dudes, including multiple cellos. Jeff Lynne writes a song, which he was between bands when he writes this song, so it's intended to be for the move which is Roy Wood's current band, but somehow ELO gets to record it. Okay. And that ended up becoming ELO's first single, which is the 10538 Overture. (laughs) (laughs) That is the title. (laughs) This is like Andy Warhol meets music. Oh, they're a bunch of space nerds. Just wait. So because Roy and and Jeff are like between bands. They release the single, but then things get really stalled because the move is trying to wrap up. Jeff's leaving his band. And so they kind of just like sit there for a while. Mm-hmm. They released that song in 1970, but they don't release, they release it early 1970. They don't release their first full length album until December, 1971. And it, then it's only released in the UK. It's a self-titled album called Electric Light Orchestra. In March 72, so four months later, they release it in the U.S., but it's released under the name No Answer. And that's because the name got changed when a record company secretary tried to call the U.K. record company and get the name of the answer or the album, but no one answered the phone, so they left a note (laughs) saying No Answer, 
And that was the title of the album. Oh, that's great. That's listening to the fans. I think something that we've learned from the Rolling Stones and uh, this is you should always have your album name prepared when the record label calls you. So you don't just look and be like, oh, Uh, let me look around the room. Somehow the 105.38 Overture becomes a UK top 10 song. Okay. Obviously, they were not going off the name. It is a really cool song. It's very, very string heavy, very trippy. It's great. Their debut concert, they had never played a show together before recording this album, which to me is weird. Yeah. So their debut concert took place on April 16th, 1972, which is six months after their album dropped. Oh, jeez. Which is weird. Yeah. And the reason I have not told you the lineup of the band right now is because right after this show, most of them quit. (laughs) (laughs) Did they realize, hey, this isn't working? Well, they quit because uh, I guess they had like a little bit of a mini tour set up for that first album. Yeah. And on that tour, the the sound, I mean, it's 1972, so your sound's not great anyway, but the cellos and the violins couldn't be heard over the electric instruments, and so they got really pissed and quit. Oh my gosh. But it is worth noting that that original lineup had one person playing keyboard and French horn, (laughs) three separate cellos, a violin, and an upright bass. Jeez. So at this point, Jeff Lynne, who kind of was letting... Roy Wood run the show, decided, hey, this obviously isn't going great. I'm going to be in charge now. So he recruits people to replace those who left. And there's a new lineup that debuts at the Reading Festival in August 1972. So he moved pretty quickly from April to August. Yeah. They also upgraded their sound equipment. So now people can actually hear the strings. That's good. And help them to get the attention that those violins and cellos deserved. They deserve it, damn it. They did. They were working really, really hard. In 1973, they released a second album, creatively titled ELO2. (laughs) And they make the U.S. charts for the first time with a song called Roll Over Beethoven, which incorporates part of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. They're still, like, not picking up a whole lot of traction. Like, they have these hit songs, but they release a third album, but literally it's not even worth talking about because it was not impressive and it didn't do great. But their fourth album is a concept album and it's a great concept i love concept i listen to it it is great they release el dorado in september 1974 and the whole album is about a daydreamer it follows a guy who's basically walter mitty and he has like all these daydreams about Mm -hmm. all these crazy scenarios and he uses fantasy to escape reality and i wrote my notes same bro Um, (laughs) and it this album's also important because up until now it was the same five dudes playing all the instruments and just overdubbing themselves a million times to sound like an orchestra this album they had enough money to hire a real orchestra and a choir for backup so it's a lot it's a real full sound as opposed to a faked full sound right when writing el dorado jeff lynn wrote the story before writing the music which i thought was cool like he literally wrote like a short story walter mitty-esque story and the album is likened to the beatles across the universe and if you listen to it the influence is definitely there Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's it's different like it's not like they ripped across universe off it's just was written then across universe wasn't written then the song was oh that's true I'm Not thinking the movie. <laughs> I'm thinking the movie. No. The, the album has been likened yeah. to the song Correct. across the universe. Correct. And if, Continue. You, if you listen to it, I mean it it 
it's very obvious yeah uh, july 2010 that album el dorado was named one of classic rock magazine's 50 albums that built prog rock in 2015 it was ranked number 43 on rolling stones 50 greatest prog rock albums of all time yes it was the first ELO album to certify gold, but since it's a concept album and you can't really break out any of the songs individually, like they yeah. have to all go together, their album was like, or the record label was like, hey, we'll give you this one, but next time you need to release like a radio friendly album. Right. We got to make money. And that's the hard thing with concept albums. Yeah. You have to be either really well established to have that freedom mm-hmm. or be prepared to take a big risk. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. So in 1975, which is less than a year later, it looks like. Yeah. I don't know what month. I didn't write the month down. But less than a year later, they release Face the Music, which has more radio-friendly rock and pop songs. But they still put the strings in there pretty heavy. They can't, like, lose their their sound. Mm-hmm. This lineup became finally a stabilized lineup they finally keep some people for more than one album wow and is considered by elo fans the classic lineup so we'll tell you who they are finally <laughs> we got jeff lynn which we he's been here the whole time yeah he's on lead vocals guitars and he's acting as the producer for most of the stuff got it bev bevan which sounds like a fake name he's the drummer does all the percussion does some backing vocals sometimes mm-hmm it's impressive when a drummer does backing vocals, in my opinion. Definitely. It's really hard. Richard Tandy, he plays piano, clavinet, moog, guitar, electric piano, and tack piano. What's a moog? I don't know. I just realized that Wait, was... look up a moog right now. I need to know. I'm looking up a moog. <laughs> look it up. Hold on. It's loading. Oh, it's basically a very expensive synthesizer. Look at that. Thanks. $8,000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It just says Moog. Kelly Grewcut. He does vocals and bass. Mick Kaminsky plays violin. And Hugh McDowell and Melvin Gaye both play cello. This album included two of their biggest songs, Evil Woman and Strange Magic. And it was their first album to go platinum. So they listened to their record label. Everyone was happy. Everyone made money. It was a good time. They toured this album really, really heavily from February to April. They played 68 shows in 76 days. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's a reason we don't follow these these tour schedules anymore. (laughs) These tour schedules, man, like they were just trying to get as much money out of them. Yeah. And like, I don't understand why they couldn't just extend the tour a month and like not kill them right well that's why today like rock stars go on like two-year tours and you might say well that's extensive but they get a month off here yeah a month off off. there give them some actual breaks see their families or they're only playing on weekends yeah or only on thursdays or something weird like they'll do something like that right yeah so let's let's appreciate that we don't try to kill our rock stars anymore with these crazy schedules yes and 76 I mean, these guys are cranking out albums. If you're keeping track, this is like an album a year since they started, which is a big undertaking considering Jeff Lynn is solo writing and composing all the tracks. That's a huge undertaking. Yes. I don't know how he did it because it's not like not to like undermine like smaller bands, but you're Mm -hmm. not just writing four parts, you know, three parts and some vocals. You're writing for 
two cellos, a violin, a, a, a moog, yeah. all these things. <laughs> you can't leave out the moog part. Yes. Uh, that's I'm that's a quintessential part of the song. Never going to forget the moog now. The big moog. So in 76, they released their sixth album, which is called A New World Record, which I just... Oh, my, wait, what year is this? 76. They're like 10 years before the New World Order. That just... I thought they were mocking it for nope, a second. They just... A New World Record... I, I get that it, it was probably really cocky where they were like, this is our new big record. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. And it contains hit singles called Living Thing, Telephone Line, Rock Aria, <laughs> and Do Ya, which is a song that uh, I guess Jefflyn had originally written for Roy Wood and the move to record, but they re-recorded it as ELO like 10 years later. Mm-hmm. This So they've, been, they've made it big in the US up to this point. But as, you know, most UK artists, you, the UK has a hard time accepting their own artists. It's true. I don't understand it. America takes them. America loves them. We love them. Send all your artists over here. UK, you need to learn to appreciate who you got. <laughs> you took, never know what you got till it's gone. It took until this album for the UK to appreciate them. But this album also signified a huge shift in their sound. The songs got shorter. Like before now, they're doing easily six minute songs. Oh, that's like, Prague. Yeah. That's prog right yeah. there. So they, they start to shorten to be your more radio friendly three, four minute Sounds. song, uh, which, <laughs> which sticks the rest of their career. Yeah. And this, but this is also where, I mean, I, I mentioned that Jeff Lynn was writing everything and composing it himself, but he said, this is where I'm going to quote Jeff Lynn here. The song started to flow and most of them came quickly to me to have all those hits back to back. It was just, I mean, it was really amazing going from kind of doing okay for probably three or four years to suddenly being in the big time, it was a strange but great thing. They started hitting hit after hit after hit after hit, and they were in huge demand. Um, and he said that when he formed ELO, his goal, his and Roy Wood's goal was to create a group that would merge the excitement and color of rock and roll with mm-hmm. the clear, clean lines of classical music. And he says that a new world record is the closest ELO ever came to achieving this. Wow. So that's like considered their quintessential album of the sound that they envisioned. So that was, that was a hit record. Like it went platinum, sold tons of, tons of copies. Yeah. Uh, So they wanted to follow it with something bigger and better. So they release a double LP called out of the blue. I just love these names in 1977. And this, I mean, the, the first album kind of put them on the map. Mm-hmm. This was the album that made them superstars. It includes Turn to Stone, Sweet Talking Woman, Wild West Hero, and the one that everybody knows thanks to, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Mr. Blue Sky. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one, we, I mean, Jeff Lynne cranked out the last album. He said that it, the, the songs just like came to him. Well, he really like went overtime on this one. He wrote the entire album, which is a double album. So it's what, 20 songs? Yeah. At least in three weeks. <gasps> oh, he that was, hurts. He, he went away on a creative retreat by himself in a chalet in the Swiss Alps. Got some shrooms. Probably can't confirm. Yeah, uh, you can, you can, pr- what year is it? You can confirm it. <laughs> it is 1977. Yeah. It, yeah. But he wrote the whole album in three weeks and then, you know, he runs it by the band. They figure life out they record the whole thing in two months in munich so 
one cool note about that album is it is a double album. So there's four sides to, mm-hmm. the, to the album. Side three of the original double consisted of a symphonic concerto for a rainy day, which is four separate tracks, which make a whole suite. This is where that, you know, orchestra component comes in. Yeah. But the only, the reason that I'm mentioning this is if you listen to those songs, there's actual like thunderstorm sounds, which Jeff Lynn just recorded during a really summer, rainy summer day in Munich in 1977. That's nice. It's very nice. It's very, it's very relaxing. But that concerto suite is his last dabbling in symphonic rock. He has to go more mainstream uh, because That's so sad. to promote this album, they go on a nine month, 92 date world tour. Oh my! <laughs> the best part of this tour is so by this point, their album art starts to take on like a theme where they all they have this little spaceship, you know, kind of similar journey yeah. where they have a an unexplainable scarab beetle. beetle. Yeah, they have an unexplainable spaceship. So for this world tour. They built a gigantic spaceship with fog machines no. and a laser display. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! In the U.S. part, like the U.S. This is why the U.K. could never accept them. Yeah. They were too ridiculous for them. That's one. The thing. U.S. craves that. That's one thing that I feel like a lot of like European bands say about American audiences. They're like, yeah, you know, like like in Brazil, they're very passionate about what we do. And in Europe, they appreciate us. But U.S., you guys are just loud and crazy. And we're like, hell yeah. <laughs> Give us a us. beer. Put a beer in us. Let us cheer for our favorite band. Let us not forget Kansas made their debut on free beer. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Uh, so in the U.S., the promoters on the U.S. leg promoted it as the big night. And because of that, it became the highest grossing live concert tour in history up until that point. Oh, my gosh. They got to pay off the big spaceship somehow. That that spaceship and light show ain't cheap. The biggest part of this tour was ELO played at Wembley Arena in London for eight straight sold out nights. Wow. Which was also record breaking at that time. I should have looked up who's broken that record. So they have to follow this album. A lot of pressure. They release the the following year. So they wrap this tour in, in 78. In 79, they released Discovery, which kind of... It contains their biggest hit ever, Don't mm-hmm. Bring Me Down. Great song, but the whole album is just drug by critics because it has a lot of disco influence. Oh, yeah. But also, it's 1979. What do you expect? Yeah. It's like I, Hot you're Space. You're the ones who said they have to go mainstream. Yeah, it's like Hot Space. If you had left them to be the artists that they are, wouldn't have disco in it. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it for what it is. Don't knock it. It was 79. By the end of that year, the band had peaked. They will never reach that height of success again. But they were so in demand. I mean, they just they just finished a 92-date world tour, right? Yeah. They're tired. So Jeff, I'd be tired. Jeff Lynn ter- is invited to headline the Nebworth Festival. I don't know where that is. Somewhere in the UK. Mm-hmm. But he turned it down, so they just replaced ELO with Led Zeppelin. Casually. So that's cool. So what do you follow your 1979 disco-influenced album with? But the 1980 musical movie, Xanadu. Oh, that's right. Yes. So the producers and director of Xanadu hit up Jeff Lynn and they're like, hey, you want to write music for Xanadu? And he's like, sure. Why not? I'm in a disco kick. I don't know if that was his actual answer. Don't quote that. This movie's fair. I haven't seen the movie. I've listened to the soundtrack. It's very disco-y. Yeah. He writes half the songs to the soundtrack. Another guy wrote the other half. And this movie 
bombs at the box office. Like I was, I was going to try to summarize the plot to put it in here. I couldn't understand what the movie Xanadu. Yeah. I couldn't understand what the movie was even about. Yeah. So I was, it was not able to be summarized in two sentences. (laughs) So I said, Never mind. <laughs> if, if, if I can't boil it down to five words or less, I ain't interested. Yeah. Just go. I'm going to go watch it. I didn't have time to watch it before this. I know they've done a lot of revives of it. Well, that's on, where I'm getting. Oh, sorry. I'm going so, top of the head. The star of that movie is Olivia Newton-John. Who, yes. Uh, what year was Grease released? 19. I think it's 1970. It's something. loading. It's loading. So Grease is released in 78. So Olivia yeah. Newton-John is at the height of her career. It's 1981. Wait, that means... Or 1980. John Newton. So she and John Travolta are like old now. Yeah. Olivia Newton. How old is she? John. John Travolta is really old, I feel like. Uh, Olivia Newton-John is 71. Wow. Oof. Uh, anyway, so she's, she's at the height of her career. She's, I mean, she has her music career and her movie career. Right. She performs the song Magic in the movie, which actually went to number one in the U.S., which is kind of unusual for a movie soundtrack song to do that. But yeah, it's Olivia Newton-John. It's 1980. What do you expect? The title track of Xanadu is performed by Olivia Newton-John and ELL. Ironically, is ELO's only song to ever go to number one in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> That's really Sorry, funny. Guys. <laughs> the only reason I even know the song in the soundtrack is because in 2007, Broadway revived it. They created a stage show out of it. It had great reviews. It yeah. got four Tony nominations. I think the movie was probably just ahead of its time. That's probably what it was. A lot of these movie musicals and these rock operas they were doing were way ahead of their time. Yeah. And they were really popular during the 70s and 80s, but they were showing at like, I feel like they were only showing at like smaller theaters. So no one was truly experiencing it. I just feel like, like now we have stuff to like compare it to. Yeah. And it just would have been so new. Like Rocky Horror, like where the hell did that come from? Oh yeah. So that movie was... 30 years. Yeah. The culture wasn't ready for that film when it came out. I just feel like Xanadu may be in that boat. <laughs> yeah. I I'm going to watch it. It's it's like $2 on Amazon to rent. It's my weekend project. So that weirdly ended up being a success for them. Not a good success for the movie makers, but it is what it is. So they follow that because they're still not going to chill with a 1981 album called Time. And this time this time (laughs) didn't mean to do that they want to revisit their roots with another concept album so this album is all about space yes bet you didn't see that coming the giant spaceship on stage a concept album about space so the whole story of this album is about a man from the 1980s okay who was taken to the year 2095 where he is confronted but with the dichotomy of technological advancement and a longing for the past romance which to be honest is not that far off Ooh. from what we will probably be experiencing Ooh. in 2095 you're saying this and i was like okay this sounds like something that would happen today yeah i mean we're pretty much there we're 80 years or no 70 years too soon, but we're, we're pretty much there. We're going to have a kid that's born this year and it's going to make it to that age. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, I'm planning on uploading my consciousness to the clouds. So. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. Sign me up. <laughs> I'll be here too. 
<laughs> this one has a very strong cult following, according to Wikipedia, among a group called Retrofuturist Enthusiasts. Oh my god. That is a group. They like they obsess over past predictions of what the future will look like, like nineteen eighty four and stuff like that. I think it's cool. That is really I went cool. down that rabbit hole and I was like, this is not your research. Go back to focusing. So let me ask a question on that though. So like Tomorrowland at Disney World, Disney World, Disneyland yeah. would be an example of retro futurist. Got it. Ideals. So they were kind of trying to take the album and predict future. Yeah. I like, yeah. I, so, like, I like that rabbit hole. I like that. And this is where, I mean, it's the 80s. So they chose to use electronics over their usual orchestra. And I mean, it's a, it's a different sound. It is very 80s. I Moog, love it. The Moog's getting more use. The Moog was in heavy use on this album. And so they make that weird album about space. I don't want to call it weird. It's very, very 80s. Very synth. I love it. And Jefflin wants to keep going. Like, I mean, he's been going Why not? hard for 10 years now, 13 years now. And he wants to follow it with another double record because they haven't done one in a while. But his record label told him that it would be too expensive during the oil crisis. Okay. Valid. So they edited yeah. it down to one album called Secret Messages. They released in 83. But those songs didn't go unused. They ended up releasing the tracks they cut from that album on the B-side of another album called Afterglow in 1990. This album hit the top five in the UK, but they kind of hurt themselves by not touring for it. Yeah. Which they, that's a problem. they didn't tour because Jeff Lynn got in a huge fight with a manager and decided to end Electric Light Orchestra. Aw. Womp womp. So, because they're going through all this band drama and not touring, like, they probably should have just sucked it up for the tour. Yeah. Gone on tour and then disbanded. Yeah. Not drop an album, break up, and then never play again. Yeah. They'll play again. Don't worry. So that album didn't sell super great. It reached the top five, but... I feel like that was probably a fluke because they weren't promoting it themselves. Right. So the band goes in different directions. The drummer, Bev Bevan, he leaves to go play for Black Sabbath. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we'll be visiting him. Don't worry. Um, we'll be visiting that in a future episode. The bassist got so mad because he, I mean, he had planned on having touring income that year because they dropped an album. That's yeah. how this works. So he sues Jeff Lynn and Jet Records for a huge sum of money but eventually settles on 3,000 pounds, which in 2018 monies, according to this Wikipedia conversion, was almost a million dollars or a million pounds. What year is this? 2018. He sued them in 83. Oh, that's how inflated everything is? Uh-huh. Okay. Also, so that's equivalent. To, so it's equivalent to 994,000 pounds in 2018. In 2018, it probably wouldn't have been equivalent to almost 2 million U.S. dollars. What? Which is not the point of the story. But he sued him for a really a lot of money because he was counting on the, the tour income. Yeah. Lynn decides to he's going to take a break from recording. He records some things. Nothing's great. He produces some other bands. He's just kind of floundering here at this point. His moment has passed. For a very short time, the band gets back together. But... They disband immediately after opening for Rod Stewart <laughs> in 1996. So they're still trying to figure out what they want to do. They're taking time to do their own things. 
Bev Evans just hanging out with Black Sabbath. But he reaches an agreement with Jeff Lynne and they try to keep ELO going for a while. So Bev Bevan comes back and he's the only original band member, just the drummer, which mm-hmm. is kind of weird. So he reforms ELO under the name ELO Part 2. Wait, Jeff Lynne's not even in it? Nope, Jeff Lynne's not even in it. <laughs> just the drummer. <laughs> That's really funny. They release one album and then Bev Bevan decides, eh, I'm done with this and retires in 1999. But he reaches an agreement with Jeff Lynne that Jeff Lynne will get to take the name ELO and the rest of the band, except for the drummer, just kept operating under the name The Orchestra. Okay. It's very confusing and not a good name. They don't go very far because they're not ELO. Yeah. So from 1999 to 2014, nothing really happens. The record label still owns a lot of their music. So they're just, you know, doing the the record label thing of... Mm -hmm reissues and remixes and re-releases and greatest hit albums but then in november 2013 jeff lynn and richard tandy who i'm not going to scroll back in my notes but i think is i'm going to scroll back in my notes pause please richard tandy is the pianist okay the moog player if you will player they're asked to play a benefit concert but they bill that under jeff lynn and friends but that goes really really well like I, I believe the benefit was in the UK. The UK embraced one of their own. And we're like, hey, we want these guys to come back, please. So this... And know what you had till it's gone. This really well-known BBC radio DJ kind of sends out a poll in 2014 and was like, hey, do you guys want to hear more of Jeff Lynne and Friends? And everyone's like, yes, we do. So long story short, they end up selling 50,000 tickets for a concert for <laughs> Jeff Lennon Festival as part of BBC Radio's Festival in a Day in Hyde Park in 2014. Those 50,000 tickets sold out in 15 minutes. Wow. The people wanted Jeff Lennon Friends. But at this point, they, they changed their billing name to Jeff Lynn's ELO, which is the name that they're going to continue to use through today. Okay. That he, makes sense. He chose to use the name because he didn't want to like revise ELO. And there were a lot of ELO like, tribute and imitation bands out there. You already have Bev Bevan and his ELO Part 2, which is a dumb name. You got the orchestra, who is the leftovers of ELO Part 2. You got a cover band called Orchestra, O-R-K-E-S-T-R-A, <laughs> and the music of ELO, which is a horrible, horrible yeah. tribute band name. And so he didn't want to cause any confusion. So he's like, this is my ELO. It has my name on it. It's Jeff Lynn's ELO. That makes sense. And they've been just using that name ever since. He, he, they've, they've done some tours. They just finished a tour. The best thing that I think they've done is they played at the 2015 Grammys with Ed Sheeran, which I will post this video and watch this video for you. Ed Sheeran and, and Jeff Lynn and everyone are great. The best part of this video is Sir Paul McCartney, who's just the most adorable human. Everyone's watching this concert and they're all just sitting down. But Paul McCartney loves ELO. Like he's, yeah, he's a he's, huge fan. He respects them. So he's like standing up in the front row, like oh. waving his arms around. And he looks around and no one else is doing oh. anything. And he's just like, oh. and just keeps dancing. It's so cute. I love that. Ed introduced ELO as uh, a man and band that I love very much. So that was cute. In 2015, they released their first album in 15, first new album in 15 years called Alone in the Universe. In 2017, so very recently, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this Friday, from recording, mm-hmm. November 1st, 2019, they're releasing a new album. Really? Yeah. 
And I listened to Where to go, Jeff? They, they dropped a new single two weeks ago. It's actually really good. I can't think of what it's called right now, but I'll be listening to the album on Friday. That's awesome. And that's kind of all I have, but I want to wrap with this quote from a music journalist about ELO who says, ELO was arguably the most uncool, even defiantly anti-cool of a lot and have been the slowest to be rehabilitated since. They've been sampled by dozens upon dozens of acts, from company flow to the pussycat dolls, if you go looking. Every now and then in my journalistic career, it's been possible to coax a contemporary band to admit that ELO was an influence, the flaming lips and super furry animals being two examples. But the band with arguably the greatest amount of ELO DNA are outside of the rock genre altogether, Daft Punk. Oh, yeah, I could see that. So without without our buddy, what Jacqueline, song did Pussycat Dolls sing? I don't know. Let me Google it. No, I need to know. These are things I don't think about when I'm making these notes. Because I think about <laughs> my ADD brain thinks about them. They it's in Beep. They they sample Evil Woman. Oh, Beep is a horrible name for a song. Yeah. Side note. Yeah. So that is ELO. That was pretty cool. I feel like this was a shorter episode, but. Yeah, we had we they had two shorter episodes this. They didn't month. do anything like super crazy. Yeah, no one got arrested. Hey, not every artist we're gonna cover is going to be like <laughs> multi years, multi albums. It's not the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it's not the Who. It's sometimes we're gonna have these ones that are shorter episodes, and that's okay. No toilets were exploded in this episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell but me I, what you're drinking. Oh yeah, I always forget about this part. I'm drinking Sweet Tarts, a Maine Blueberry Sour Ale by Peak Organic Brewing Company. I really like it. It I like took a sip of it, and it is a sour, so I like braced myself for that sour, like, mm-hmm. ooh. It doesn't have that, although you made that face when you I drank did, it. So I did, I don't like sours. I love sours. It's a great sour. I also think this is one of the ones Blake drank when we interviewed him. So. I think you're right. But uh, I was inspired. <laughs> thank you for listening you can subscribe on apple podcast google play and spotify you also can leave us a review want to hear your name on air or just a name you made up to leave a review go ahead and leave a review and we may just read it special thanks to josh tarpley for our intro riff and lauren page photography for our cover art we also want to throw out a special thank you to backline coffee for supplying us with coffee keeping us going and speaker tree for our records keeping them spinning you can also like us on facebook or follow us on instagram at she will rock you podcast we're also in the twitter sphere at she will rock you the letter u pod you also can follow us individually at beth ann tarpley or at leah elizabeth dot j other than that don't do drugs don't do drugs <laughs>